Hey, you're listening to John Gregory Vincent here with the Surfacing Inclusive Leadership Podcast. This is leadership I learned the hard way during my 14 years on submarines. After a Gallup gig, working for the best human behavioral organization in the world, I was ready to launch my coaching, advising, and training company, The Submarine Way. So hey, let's cast off all lines because we're getting underway, The Submarine Way. This episode is sponsored by Submarine Way Wellness. Submarine Way Wellness are, are supplements for people who care what they put in their bodies. Nutrition alone does not give us what we need. Pure supplements where the purity and potency is guaranteed give you your energy, help ease pain, and give you more stamina. Go to www.submarinewaywellness.com, see, see the supplements, and purchase the supplements you need for better health. Hello, and guess what? That was me doing a play on words. We're joined this week by our founder and our president, Deb Cake Fortin. Hey, Deb. Hello, everyone. I'm back for an important topic. Not that all of our topics aren't important, because they are. But this particular one touches, touches me, and I think it does John as well. So the topic is this, how inclusion may have changed the wounded knee seizure 50 years ago. It's back in the news and it's, uh, I think, a really important topic for making some points that we, we, will, um, we will talk more about as we do this podcast. So a colleague mentioned on Instagram that, uh, by the way, she's a D- DEI consultant, DEI officers around the country are losing their jobs in record numbers. Basically, that was her comment on Instagram. So let's assume that tr- that's true. And in fact, we have a dear colleague of ours who just lost her job. She's been in it for a year. She's a DEI officer. So at least we have one data point that that's true. So the question is, what is happening to DEI? And why does it appear the commitment is wavering? Or, or I guess, is it actually wavering? And we'll talk about that and kind of explore maybe ways that we could take that, I'll call it an industry, although that's not accurate, and, and, and make, it, make it a bit better in the business environment. So, so we're gonna start first by talking about the anniversary of the wounded knee seizure 50 years ago. Here's a bit of background. Hang with us, we'll pull this all together and it's gonna make sense to you, I promise. So according to NPR, it's been exactly 50 years since hundreds of Native American activists seized the South Dakota town of Wounded Knee, kicking off a month-long occupation that helped galvanize the movement for indigenous rights across the U.S. On February 27, 1973, some 200 members of the Oglala Lakota tribe, led by members of American Indian Movement, the AIM, Remember that. You're going to hear it throughout this podcast. Actually, I think they're referred to as AIM, John. But Well, I was spelling out the acronym <laughs> okay. AIM, which okay. is AIM. Okay. Why do I have you on the show? <laughs> anyway, occupied uh, the Pine Ridge Reservation Village, which was also the site of the 1890 massacre in which federal troops killed as many as 300 Lakota men, women, and children. The activists set out to protest corruption in tribal leadership, 
and highlight the U.S. government's failure to honor native treaties. I want to read that again because the activists were not just there to talk about the United States government, but they also were talking about the corruption in their own leadership, along with the U.S. government's failure to honor native treaties. They went on to hold the town for 71 days in what the U.S. Marshal Service calls the longest civil disorder in its history. An incredible situation. So uh, journalist Kevin McKiernan, he covered the occupation as a rookie reporter for NPR, said even though the federal government had banned journalists from Wounded Knee, he covered it anyway. And he said that what he saw um, as the two big issues that were out there, and in fact, uh, he cited this, that poverty and police brutality were two of the driving forces behind the movement. By the way, I have to ask the question, does that sound familiar? Of course it does. Federal authorities descended on the reservation where they exchanged gunfire and negotiations with the protesters began. They killed two Native American men and wounded and arrested many others. The activists ultimately surrendered on May 8th after officials promised to investigate their complaints. And then 40 years, 47 years later actually, George Floyd is killed by police officers in Minneapolis. Businesses and civic organizations alike went running for solutions. DEI organizations cropped up around the country Communities hired community liaisons and Confederate flags came down in at least some places. And law enforcement sought out sensitivity and leadership training. And we're very familiar with that because our organization has done a lot of training with FBI academies, with police departments around the Southeast. So we're gonna pause here for a moment for more on Wounded Knee. According to NPR 50 years ago, the religious ceremonies that took place inside Wounded Knee during this, during this, um, this siege or this takeover became a, a kind of laboratory for the hundreds who came there. It was about getting their religious uh, religion back, learning some of their language, and this led to a revival. Which I think is a very interesting topic, and we're going to talk more about this as we go on. But it's very interesting that an event like this... Um, which is, is a very violent situation, could actually lead to the revival of a lot of the culture that has been lost over the last 150 years. I think it's a really, really important point, and we'll draw a conclusion on that in a moment. So interestingly, getting their religion back and learning some of their languages again, these are two components of what I would look at at core identity, language, and religion. To Deb's point, this is true inclusion. Embracing one's identity. And the occupation did draw public attention to the federal government's repeated injustices against Native Americans and infringements upon their sovereignty. It helped energize the movement for indigenous rights. And many saw echoes, and even some of the same activists in, in more recent events such as Standing Rock, the Standing Rock resistance. To the Dakota Access um, Pipeline, yes. Um, so the Native Indian communities have not found their nirvana, so we don't want to pretend that they have, but they have organized in a way that they have brought back their culture and strengthened their people. 
So let's go back now to George Floyd's murder. It almost seems the efforts to react to George Floyd's death often have been on the surface. True inclusion has not incurred in communities. The passion in 2020 for equity seems to be more of a check in the block than a plan. Is this a leadership failure or is, or is the mission unclear? If you don't know where you're going, all roads will take you there. If you say that our objective here is to have a more equitable, diverse workplace, a more equitable and diverse and inclusive workplace. And, and inclusive community. What does that mean? Do you really have a clearly defined mission? How can law enforcement organizations really become inclusive and diverse with community? Is it just sensitivity training? Is it just the phrase community policing? Is it hiring people diverse like the community? I think absolutely that that's an important component of it, but how do you define the mission of inclusion with community leaders? And are communities really clear on what that looks like? How does your business truly create an inclusive culture that goes way beyond what I call, what we call a lot of times, just a check in the block, or bringing up a resource group so people can get together and, and, and communicate and collaborate with each other, all important things, but is that all? And, and I think the answer to that is no. Does your DEI programs clearly define their charter? It goes back to the mission, essentially. Define the mission. What are you trying to accomplish here? And do you tie it to everything an organization ties initiatives to, which is ROI, return on investment? We believe it's critical for my business experience, 25 years modifying, um, bringing up, starting, evolving uh, DEI programs for a number of different organizations. If you don't tie it to re return on investment, what happens is when the budget changes next quarter, then the money to fund those initiatives goes away. So you have to tie it to what are you going to get out of it from a business perspective. And as we work with communities, we found it's very important for communities to have some return on investment. If not a return on investment, at least a KPI that measures your success. It's interesting, when we kicked off, uh, this all started with a speech, which we've talked about in many of our po podcasts that Deb wrote and I delivered in 2017, which was wildly well-received. But I can tell you that we were not wildly well-received in the traditional um, D, E, and I community because we, again, tie things to business bottom lines. If you really want to change cultures, and the same to Deb's point about communities, they have to see a change. They have to see what's in it for us. And we actually completely redefine it. We believe- And by the way, the best way to do that is numerically. There has to be a key performance indicator or an ROI. Just talking about the benefits is not enough when it comes to investments. And to that point, we just don't use the words equity, inclusion, and diversity. 
which by the way, you'll notice is a different order. We actually attach things. Equity equals talent. Talent is the great leveler. It doesn't care what you look like. It doesn't care about gender. It doesn't care about socioeconomic. You start with equity. And then when you get people with different talents coming together and sharing what we call interdependent collaboration, that's true inclusion. So when you create an equitable and inclusive environment or police force, or organization or community, you're now much more welcoming to that diversity. So that was not looked on all that favorably, but the reality is, is exactly what Deb said. It, of course, it's the right thing to do, but if it's gonna keep going momentum, getting momentum, the community has to see tangible benefits. So what's the mission? And the business needs to see tangible benefits too. If you aren't clearly defining mission, having a detailed plan and are describing it in terms of ROI, then you don't have a long-standing strategy that's gonna change the culture. AIM, if you remember that from earlier, was super effective at creating lasting cultural change in their community and also bringing community attention to their issues. And they've continued to build on it. They knew what their mission was, they focused on it, and they drove it. In 2019, when we started talking about DEI as a business strategy that could drive ROI, we were one of one saying it. John alluded to that a minute ago. I encourage you to ask your DEI team for a clearly defined mission with benchmarks and KPIs. If you can measure the program in terms of ROI or KPIs, do so and keep selling it up. Keep showing the value of your program and how you're evolving the culture and how your people are feeling included. And you can do that through, through people, uh, through the, you know, um, surveying them on their onboarding experience, their post-onboarding experience. You can create some KPIs and some data about how inclusive people are. There's also other benchmarks, like what is your turnover? Has your turnover dropped since you started focusing on inclusion? So those are some other KPIs. And of course, our organization is here to help you with building out a lot of KPIs to help you with measuring that. So anyway, this will assure your DEI program is around for a long time and your culture changes, which is, assures that your program will stay put, and it's a truly inclusive culture. Correct. And at the end of the day, equity, inclusion, and diversity is an incredibly powerful business strategy to drive profitability, to, to drive higher retention, to drive innovation. It is a business strategy, and it is also a strategy for building stronger communities. That's the lens to look through it. And to my, my colleague on Instagram, who um, started me thinking about all of this, and, and she made the point, isn't humanity enough? Humanity should be enough. It actually should be enough. She's right on that. Uh, but the reality is that in business and in communities, where budgeting probably takes a greater priority over everything, it's critical that you can have KPIs and ROI to prove uh, what you're doing, to prove what you're, you're, what you're accomplishing, um, and that in fact you have some measurement that shows that you're changing the culture. It was really great being here. I really enjoyed it, and I hope this made an important point for your organization. If we can help you, again, we are The Submarine Way, thesubmarineway.com. What do we do? 
The model is right out of submarines. It is talent-based, inclusion-focused, mission-oriented, and we do that through four steps. We assess the culture and the key personnel that we're gonna be working with. We then coach those key personnel. We then team coach and team train those personnel, and then we reinforce. So that is the model and that is the system. We would love to have a conversation with you and how we can help your organization not just be more equitable, inclusive, and diverse, but for those leaders to be wildly more effective. Thanks so much for listening. And we have a new tagline now, because I don't do the screaming anymore, Deb, as you well know. We just simply say, be well. Be well. <laughs>